Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Raphael Baer, standing in for Jonathan Friedland this week. A few weeks ago, Joe Biden gave his first major speech on foreign policy since taking office. In that address, the president ceremoniously declared, America is back. And we all kind of knew what he meant, although it wasn't clear where America had actually been. And if it's back to stay, what exactly will be different? That question is being asked most urgently by allies in Europe. That was supposed to be the oldest and strongest relationship, defining what it means to be the West. But that didn't seem to mean much, if anything, to the Trump administration. So can the old flame be rekindled? And that could be the easy bit. Biden has set his administration a target of holding abusers of human rights to account, using American power to uphold values of democracy and the rule of law. But how will that work when even some NATO members seem to be heading down an authoritarian path? And how does Washington even begin to engage with Vladimir Putin's Russia? It's one thing to prove yourself trustworthy to your old allies in the West, but that presumes there is still such a thing as the West, as a coherent strategic bloc, and that it still has some function in the world, some recognition elsewhere as a beacon of freedom and democracy. These are epoch-defining questions, and to help me get my head around them, I sought the wisdom of someone who has witnessed the evolution of US foreign policy across generations, a veteran and expert, Ambassador Nicholas Burns. Ambassador Burns is a professor of the practice of diplomacy and international relations at Harvard. Previously, he worked with George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and was ambassador to NATO, among other high-ranking positions. He also acted as foreign policy advisor to Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign. I began by asking him that central question. If America is back, where did it go? Uh, Raphael, America went unilateral in the West, rest of the world under Donald Trump's presidency. And I think what President Biden meant was the United States needs to be engaged in the world. We need to be at the World Health Organization, paying our dues and working with the rest of the world. And we had not done that under President Trump. We certainly need to be at the Paris Climate Change Agreement. And third, uh, President Biden has been a longtime supporter of NATO and of our strategic relationship with the European Union. President Trump was famously, uh, at best, ambivalent about NATO and, and outright hostile. But 23 of the 28 member nations are still not paying what they should be paying and what they are supposed to be paying for their defense. This is not- President Biden stopped President Trump's decision to withdraw up to 12,000 American soldiers from Germany, which is part of the NATO deterrence against Russia. So what President Biden means is 
the American people in both parties and in consistently in public opinion polls want to be engaged in the world. And they particularly want to be engaged with Europe because people on our side of the Atlantic admire the commitment to democracy of the United Kingdom and of the European countries. That's NATO. And so I think he's bringing us back to where we should have been all along. Now, now this you've raised a lot of really important dimensions to this there already, because, I mean, you're absolutely right. President Trump described the, the European Union as an enemy at one point. Uh, and I wonder to what extent a sort of personnel change at the White House and new language can erase that or whether there is sort of scarring in the relationship. And I'm thinking in particular about the discourse you now have in a lot of European capitals about the need for uh, strategic autonomy in Europe. Is there a sense that now that it's it's sort of not enough for Washington to say, well, that was an aberration for four years, but it's okay because we can pick up the relationship where we left off? Well, you know, it is. it was an aberration for four years. If you look at United States policies since the late 1940s, we've been consistently pro-transatlantic in NATO and with the European Union, supporting every epoch uh, of um, the construction of the European Union from the coal and steel community in the 40s to the Treaty of Rome in 1957 to the creation of the common market, then down to Maastricht. We've been involved supporting Europe in this. And so it was an aberration for Donald Trump to then turn around and say, well, the Europeans are really our competitors and they're out to get us and we ought not to be working with them. Biden's brought us back to where the American public is. And he did acknowledge the scar tissue, Raphael, as you said. He he said in a recent speech at the Munich Security Conference, at the virtual Munich Security Conference this year, we know we have to earn your trust back, but I don't think Europeans should worry too much about where the Americans will be. And I don't think the American people want to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. That trust issue cuts both ways a little bit, though, doesn't it? Because... There is a sense also that the Europeans, for example, some of them are, are more ambivalent uh, on the question of Russia. They play it both ways. There's the Nord Stream gas supply project, uh, which I think a lot of um, on the American side, there might be some doubts about whether that makes Germany too strategically dependent on Russia. And there's this old issue of, of load bearing, of whether actually Europe essentially free rides on American defense spending. And, and that, that predates Trump era frustration, doesn't it? So is there a sense that actually after the honeymoon, there are going to be some deeper strategic tensions that are actually going to come back, I suppose, on, on strategy and in fact, trade? I think um, that's a very insightful question. And I would answer it in, in, in two quick points. The first is to say, I think that the transatlantic agenda, the United Kingdom, the United States, the European Union, NATO is going to be largely positive over the next several years. There's so much that unites us from needing to contain Russia, to thwart its cyber aggression against all of our countries, to promote democracy, and to keep NATO healthy. But you're right, Raphael, it's, we've never had a problem-free transatlantic relationship going back to you know, the beginnings of the Cold War. There is economic competition between the EU and the United States. The EU is floating this digital services tax, which many Americans disagree with. The EU has become the most aggressive regulator of, uh, of the tech companies in the United States. And so there are problems here. The European Union itself is divided on 5G. The US and UK have a view on that. And that is Huawei should be out. And I, I do think that China is an issue where we need to coalesce. And right now, there really isn't a high degree of unity between the US and Europe. 
Yeah, in fact, I'd go even further. I think there is a strong sense in which the way the leaders of the European project now see their affairs, particularly now that the UK has left, uh, is in this idea of the regulatory superpower as if the EU is one of the big three, the other two being the US and China. And I think if you're a hard military power like the US, you'd probably be entitled to be a bit sceptical about that. But because regulatory power is sort of the only power Brussels has got, I wonder to what extent that's going to become a, a problem, whether you know, is it really a, a world of, of those three powers or would President Biden really want to see the EU and the US as the sort of as a group of two with China as the third one? I don't think anyone, any leader in the United States and either of our political parties wants to see Europe equidistant between the United States and China. Some Europeans are saying that, that um, Europe should seek a third path in the world. My sense is that, that Chancellor Merkel wants to be transatlantic. There are others, perhaps in the French government, who want to see this strategic autonomy, Europe acting on the big issues separately. That's not how we've ever done it uh, since the close of the Second World War, confronting both Russian cyber aggression and territorial ambitions in Eastern Europe and what the Chinese threat represents. Um, that would weaken all of us if Europe decided to go its own way. I hope it doesn't. There's no reason why we shouldn't have technological progress here in the UK, allow consumers, businesses uh, in the UK to have access to fantastic uh, technology, fantastic communications, but also protect our security interests. It's significant that the UK is no longer one of those big three within the EU. And, and you, know, on, you mentioned China. There was that moment uh, not that long into Boris Johnson's government where he effectively executed a, a sort of 180 degree U-turn on the strategic China question under a fair amount of pressure from the then Trump administration. And and I wonder, thinking about, you know, we talk about there being three players or equidistance and, and strategic autonomy, the feeling that the UK has maybe slightly aggrandized its capacity also to be an autonomous strategic actor. And there was a certainly been a lot of reporting here in the UK that uh, the, the Biden administration or the people around him before he moved to the White House, at least, just saw Brexit as a huge strategic folly, just a mistake and a mess. But it's also just a narrow a sort of geopolitical fact. I wonder how established is that view, do you think, that, that Brexit was just a, a stupid idea, basically? I think most people on, on our side of the Atlantic uh, and all of us you know, support and admire Britain uh, believe that Brexit was a mistake, that it's going to reduce Britain's power in the world and influence. And I think in this question, Raphael, that we were talking about, about the European Union, we Americans prized Britain's role in the EU because Britain was, in many ways, a more globally minded country than France and Germany. Britain exercised a cautionary influence on some of the excesses, sometimes of Gallic independence uh, from both you and from us. And that was a very important role that British, that Britain played, almost translating the United States into the EU and translating the EU back to the United States. And now Britain's gone. It means the United States needs to develop a closer strategic relationship, certainly with Germany and France and Poland and Italy and others. But it, it's a big loss for us, frankly. The United States and the UK now need to, in essence, redevelop their relationship as independent actors of the world, particularly as we work with the European Union. I have to 
pick up the point that you mentioned, uh, sort of Gallic uh, exceptionalism, because actually you have in a new Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, a Francophone, a Francophile. C'est pas une question de sous-estimer, c'était surtout une question de, de, de quoi faire, de que faire. You know, how significant culturally do you think that is? I mean, it's, it's to me, looking from the outside, just to hear the man speak French as 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 fluently and sort of natively as he does, it, it feels like a new chapter in American foreign policy just because of the way he speaks. Oh, I think it's a great advantage to the United States that our Secretary of State is uh, is fluent in French and understands Europe so so well, as well as many other parts of the world, by the way. And so, of course, you know, France is an exceptionally important country, uh, both in the European Union, in NATO. I do think, however, Germany ultimately is the key country in the European Union, given the size of its economy, its export and manufacturing strength, its geopolitical position right in the heart of Europe. And um, we're going to miss Chancellor Merkel. She's been a great partner to the United States, with the exception of President Trump, I think all of our presidents over the last 15 years have worked with her very, very well. And obviously, we hope that her successor as chancellor, whoever that is, is going to want to see a very tight relationship between Germany and the U.S., the EU, and, and of course, NATO in the U.S. And on NATO, it's very important that Germany continue its, you talked about load bearing, it's, you know, the, the fact that every one of the countries in NATO should be spending at a minimum. 2% of its gross domestic product on defense. Germany's at 1.5%, but it's heading towards 2% under Merkel. Let's hope that continues under uh, her successor. Uh, yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? There is this ongoing question of, you know, for, for the whole of the second half of the 20th century, German foreign policy and strategic thinking was, was slightly conditioned with very, very good reason by the notion of atonement. Uh, and it, they seem to struggle with this idea that actually you might have to step up and become a military power. They don't really know how to do that. But ultimately, as you say, you know, it, it's it's the last big Western power before you get, you know, before Russia. I mean, Poland would probably argue about that. But that relationship and the way that evolves is going to be very interesting when, you know, Merkel's very much a Cold War generation leader. You know, she grew up in Eastern Germany. She understood communism. And, and, and I think that I'd be interested to know how you see that evolving over the next, you know, well, as you say, the next couple of years. Well, we certainly see a, seen a dramatic evolution of how the Germans see their own role as, you know, 30 years ago, when we fought the Gulf War, the United States and the United Kingdom and 40 other countries to eject Saddam Hussein from Kuwait back in 1991, Germany decided it could not participate in that military mission. Germany was not really a factor in the Bosnia stabilization force in 1995, but then it made its entrance in Kosovo four years later in 1999. It sent troops to that mission, and, and I think we all need a strong Germany in the world. But I do think, Raphael, the issues are changing a bit. Um, obviously, Russia is still a major preoccupation for all of us in the transatlantic world, but China is the key global issue, and China's challenge to the West for the United States, that's going to be the priority issue. And Australia, Japan, and India are all very tightly integrated with what the United States is doing to limit China's um, aggressive behavior in the Indo-Pacific. Europe seems to be divided. And I wonder if the United States, is, as, as we look to the East, those allies become very, very important. And the fact that they are strategically coherent on the issue of China and Europe isn't. I think is part of the 
part of the work that we have to do in the transatlantic relationship really to congeal and to have one policy, one strategic policy, if we can, uh, vis-a-vis China. That's such an important distinction, isn't it? Because China is, you know, because of its economic success and its growth and the sheer scale of it and the, the power it has acquired can actually represent an alternative, it's a different superpower, it's an alternative pole and actually an alternative model of development even in a way that Russia isn't. Russia is, is can be sort of mischievous and turbulent, but you know, it's almost a sense of, of Russia lashing out against its own decline. And that's a situation that has to be managed. Um, I, wanna, I wanted to ask you a bit about Russia because the low point must have been that scene in Helsinki where... People came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. President Trump appeared to side with Vladimir Putin over the assessment of his own uh, intelligence services. and, And thankfully, we're out of that era now, it seems. But nothing actually seems to work strategically to fix the relationship between the West and Russia. We tried engagement, you tried containment, there was the Obama reset, you know, carrot stick, sanctions. It's easy to talk about, you know, trying to have a response, but is the toolkit now essentially empty when you think about how you actually manage that relationship? I don't think it's empty. I think it's very problematic. This is going to be a difficult relationship for all of us, for the UK and US going forward. And you've seen the very tough-minded approach that President Biden has taken just in his first six weeks in office. There's no honeymoon. There's no reset. He had a very frank call uh, with President Putin. The United States, like Europe and like the UK, uh, is going to be sanctioning Russia, uh, I hope, over Navalny, over the arrest of um, Alexei Navalny. The Russians represent a a threat to the three Baltic countries uh, that are members of NATO, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And they they represent an ongoing threat to Ukraine. So I think it's going to be a largely confrontational uh, and, and difficult relationship. There are two issues where I think the Biden administration could work productively with Russia. You've seen that President Biden and President Putin decided to extend the New START agreement. This is the agreement that limits strategic nuclear arms that both sides can have, extending it for five years was a very positive step. And as the US and UK and Germany and France think about renewed negotiations with Iran over its uh, nuclear weapons aspirations and the bid to prevent them from becoming a nuclear weapons power, Russia is going to be very important. Russia will be at the table along with China on our side of the table in that PERM 5 plus Germany grouping. And so um, I think there might be some issues where we can work with the Russians, but it's largely going to be confrontational, difficult, because President Putin has proven to be uh, an enormously difficult adversary for all of us in the transatlantic world. And one of the things that seems really to have changed in that relationship uh, is that you know, when you think about the 1989 and the end of the Cold War, uh, and the, the West essentially felt it had been vindicated by the forces of history. You know, we were talking about the end of history and and Francis Fukuyama. That moment now feels very remote. And actually the idea that there's a liberal democratic Western model uh, that has a huge pull factor for other countries around the world, that there is a a sort of a moral beacon that is represented by the West. It, to me, feels harder to assert that feels, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say it's an obsolete idea, but it feels like a slightly vintage idea now. And I wonder you know, to what extent you think 
first of all, has the, did the Trump administration do really permanent damage to that idea, to the to the ideal of Washington as the city on the hill, to the extent that 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 reached beyond that idea reached beyond American shores, and and how how would one go about repairing that idea? What to what extent can the West, if it even exists as an idea, now project those values in a, in a practical sense? It is essential that we preserve the functioning of the democratic world and human freedom and our commitment to democratic processes and the rule of law. It's that's who we are. That's what Britain, the United Kingdom has been all about, as well as the United States, as well as the European countries and Japan and India. And President Biden's been saying that one of the great struggles in the world for the next couple of decades will be the power of the authoritarian countries led by China and Russia versus the power of democracy. So um, we've seen real, a real crisis of democracy in the United States with the insurrection uh, at our capital on January 6th of this year, so important to the future of the democratic world, now need to recover and rebuild and have a confidence that what we represent, what we believe in human freedom and individual liberty in democratic societies is a superior model for the future than the authoritarian model of Russia and China. So that's an ideological battle. It sounds like the Cold War, but it isn't the Cold War. And it's very important that we that we are in this battle rhetorically and we defend the way we think that human human beings should organize their societies. But then I looked at what happened in Belarus and I mean, far more so than in the case of Navalny, you had week after week the most extraordinary heroism. That's right. Uh, and but but I can't help thinking that if that had been half a generation or so earlier, it, it would have been a color revolution. It would have been. It would have really changed the the nature of the Belarusian regime. And actually, what happened is Lukashenko sat it out, and he basically prevailed. It appears, for the time being, to have prevailed because either what we used to think of as the West didn't have either lacked the self confidence to affect that situation, or or was distracted by other things. There was a pandemic on, in fairness. But it seems to me terribly sad that that. Belarusian flowering of civil society and democracy seems to that flower pops up in 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 a desert and it it didn't flourish and that to me it seems to say something slightly worrying about the times that we're in. Well, they're up against great odds, aren't they? Navalny's up against a powerful Russian oppressive state apparatus, and the Belarusians the same. NATO's not going to intervene militarily in these countries, but we ought to be lending our political support, our rhetorical support. And we ought to be calling out human, bri- human rights abuses when they occur. That did not happen under Donald Trump. Joe Biden is speaking out. His Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is. I think that makes that's where we should be. Is it a problem then with NATO that you, the alliance itself, you know, which as well as being a military, a security mutual assistance pact, is is supposed to be also the military club for democracies? Has you know you have you have Turkey, which is you know a very big contributor. Uh, taking an increasingly authoritarian direction. You have Hungary, which under Viktor Orban has really hollowed out the institutions of democracy. And, and Poland also sort of tilting towards that model. There is a kind of mini Putinism going on in those countries. that, And as you said, that were heroic in terms of standing up to authoritarianism in the 1980s and, and reestablished their, their, their place in the family of European democracies. And now NATO itself seems to be incubating authoritarianism. And again, that I, I want to be more optimistic, but that worries me. 
Well, it is worrisome. It's a major problem, actually, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian authoritarian leader inside NATO and the EU. Um, I just was involved in a a year-long effort by Harvard Kennedy School, where I teach, and the German Council on Foreign Relations. We issued a report on the future of the transatlantic relationship. One of our recommendations is that NATO and the EU should withhold financial support in the case of NATO, military support uh, for some of these countries, as long as they're authoritarian. We can't expel them from NATO because everything at NATO is is decided by consensus. They would block any resolution to do so, but we can sideline them and we we can penalize them in a way that we should because certainly Hungary's turned, the Hungarian government has turned against democracy. The Turkish government has Poland to a lesser extent, but it's a problem that we have to be uh, have to be seized by. I think NATO should do this. The Europeans should as well. Um, you've been very generous with your time already, so I'm just going to ask one last question. The, 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 on this podcast is the traditional "what else" question, and I wanted to raise uh, President Biden's airstrike in Syria recently and a retaliatory action in relation to uh, to Iran um, uh, obviously conducted in a very with a very different tone uh, and what seems to be a very different spirit to the way that uh, the previous president uh, talked about and used force uh, but I wonder going back to our original question about you know, where America went and is America back uh, to what extent it was important for President Biden then to show that, that, that America is still prepared to wield hard power and even whether there's an extent to which America might be prepared to be back in that sense of the world's policeman uh, that we were more familiar from in perhaps the Clinton administration and before. Well, I don't think that the United States should consider itself the world's policeman because we're not and we cannot be that. But we certainly have to defend ourselves and our allies when they're threatened. In this case, Iran launched a major ballistic missile attack on an American air base in Iraq. And so there had to be a response by the United States. I support what President Biden did. It was limited, but it was tough-minded. And this was directed not at the Syrian government, this particular one, but at the Iranian-affiliated terrorist groups. This points to the larger problem. We talked, Raphael, about the fact that the U.S. and U.K. will possibly be sitting down with Iranian officials to see if it's if negotiations on the nuclear issue are in order, which are a great threat to everyone in that region, including uh, outside the region in Europe. I would really love to now take this into the realm of, of relations with Saudi Arabia and the wider Middle East, but we better not do that because we're, we're out of time. But I just want to express my appreciation for your insight and for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for the invitation. That's all from me this week. Jonathan Friedland will be back behind the mic next Friday. Make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly, where Heather Stewart presents our spring budget special. Just look for that in the same feed you found us. Thank you also to producer Danielle Stevens. I'm Raphael Baer. Please keep safe out there and thanks so much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.